So the, the Taoist practices of Jing Qi Shen, the three treasures, have a, a focused and strong mind through meditation, generate a good feeling that like you could just call, call that being more positive, being happier. And then within the physical body, a body that is able to function in the world, that is healthy and strong and flexible. And so really that is the, the idea of having the three tre treasures of Jing, Qi, Shen, mind, heart and body is the ability to, if you like, um, inhabit the soul, you know, so that the soul can rest in the body without too many distortions. And you, you can really live your maximum capacity in your daily life, creatively, in your relationship, in your work. Welcome back to the podcast with myself, Wayne Walker. In this episode, I'm speaking on meditation with Graham Waterfield. Graham is a teacher and an energy coach that's been practicing the art of self-development for almost 30 years. He's got a unique perspective on soul expression, purpose, and really guides students through the concept of awakening and just reflecting on how they can be better iterations of themselves, both mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. So in this conversation, we're going to dive into sort of defining what meditation really is, look at the organismic self and what the definition of an organismic self is, look at the Zen, Taoist and Buddhist approach to meditation. We're going to examine transcendence and micro-attention. Then we're going to look at somatic intelligence um, around sort of the whole body yes concept. Uh, we're going to look at emotional, physical and mental health and practices that, that Graham uses for the mind, heart and body. We're going to sp uh, speak about self-care as well and then just get some of Graham's final thoughts on meditation and, and what we can take away into our daily practice. Please do enjoy this wide-ranging conversation. I found Graham such a relaxing and peaceful uh, man to speak to. Um, he's got some fantastic perspectives just across the board. And uh, yeah, please do also rate and review the podcast. I'm always keen to uh, to get better and to optimize the content. All right, enjoy. So welcome to the podcast, Graham. Thank you so much for having me along. It's such a pleasure and uh, honor to be here. So thank you for the invitation. So what I wanted to do, Graham, is really just discuss a whole card array of things around meditation, really. So I wanted to look at definitions of meditation, then the organismic self and the definition of that, then look at maybe some of the Zen, Taoist and Buddhist approach of meditation, and uh, also look at transcendence, micro-attention, and some of the whole body, yes. Um, and then look at some of the practices and tools, because I think we are fundamentally tool-bearing creatures. So I would love for listeners to have, have some tools to take away, and then some final thoughts on self-care but maybe Graham if we could just start by unpacking a little bit about yourself actually and your own journey through meditation and indeed what it means to you mm, thank you that's a great question so that in Zen you know the and the word Zen simply means meditation and then the, the you, you speak to a Zen master and uh, you'll get a different answer from every single Zen master on what Zen or meditation is so my, my journey through meditation, I can actually pinpoint the first book I read on meditation when I was a sales manager. And I think I was about 19 years old at the time. 
And I remember opening it. I think it was some kind of 80 cheesy sales book, you know? And it was, uh, I think it was called Psycho Selling. So sorry for saying, saying that was cheesy if the author's listening. But, you know. so, but it was great. It was a good book. And uh, there was a part in there about visualization, you know, uh, using the mind before you saw a client or before you um, took on any project, really. And I, I idea of using the mind in a way that would uh, benefit, I guess, the situation you find yourself in. And part of that was that you were encouraged to lay down on the bed, eyes closed, watching the breath, relaxing the body. And I think from what I remember, there was a, either a CD or a tape with the book that was this guided, what I would now say is a, is a visualization. And I think that was the first time I ever connected with an experience of meditation. Of course, my understanding continues to develop over the last 30 years of what meditation is, but that was a start. And then I think the next, the next big sledgehammer for that was I was also studying uh, Kung Fu at the time or various, I was jujitsu, Kung Fu, various martial arts. And there was a, there was a day that we, um, the, that we started to play with this energy called chi within the, with the, the Kung Fu form. And what they were getting us to do was kind of breathe, breathe from what they call the Dantian, they call the second chakra in India, what they call the Hara in Japan, and breathe in a way that we were imagining that we were breathing into our hand and we were moving, say, punches very slowly. And I started to get weird sensations of burning in my hand and, you know, very various other things. And that was my ever, weirdly, that was so mind-blowing that that was my last ever martial arts lesson because I became so addicted to the idea of energy and chi. And it was like, wow, something said, this is what you've been looking for. And so I ended up being attuned to a new system that was floating around that everyone's heard of at the moment called Reiki. And that was my second induction. There was a lot of uh, meditations. Reiki is actually a it's actually a Japanese form of esoteric Buddhism that has its roots very much in a Zen, but has been kind of rebranded in the West. But I guess that was my my real induction into the start of a, a what we could call a meditation lifestyle. I don't know if you want me to go into a bit of biography at this point, or you want me to go into that later. So how do you feel about that? So yeah, Graham, please go deeper because what I would be interested to know is how you then turn that into both a lifestyle and a calling in life. A point briefly, because I've been I've had so many experiences in, you know, retreats in Thailand and India and various masters and teachers over the years so to try and compact it down into a series of events okay so then uh, th that exploration of uh, yoga and meditation uh, that I started getting to through through uh, Reiki ended up with me traveling to India to study various meditation techniques over there which led me to quitting my job in sales becoming uh, training to be a counselor in the mental health you know services then then noticing there was something missing in counseling as I where I did a three-year diploma in counseling and realized I'd seen a way of being in some great teachers in India that wasn't represented in counseling at the time this presence of being and certain art forms like meditation and yoga that I was seeing at 
very powerful at healing depression, anxiety, and a lot of the things my clients were uh, presenting with, and which was actually on the side note was a start of my own healing, my own depression and anxiety with meditation. But that's a, a story maybe we can come back to later. Uh, that led me into wanting to do a, a more caring, heart-based job. So I trained to be a youth worker, uh, worked in young people's drugs projects, uh, young people's mental health uh, 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 units. Uh, working on a, I ended up working on a psychiatric unit, actually teaching uh, Tai Chi there and Qigong. Um, and in the background all the time, I, I was finding that I was needing to meditate every single day to be uh, effective as a youth worker or effective, more compassionate, more um, able to listen and to be present to, to young people and their problems and to be able to respond from a place of probably wisdom as opposed to reaction. And so meditation in the background became like a, a life raft for me uh, as I navigated these uh, new kind of sometimes turbulent waters in, in the career choices I, I was making, which was also beautiful in, in many ways, but certainly uh, challenging to my understanding of uh, the world and how to interact with people calmly. Uh, and then I guess that carried on unfolding, really. I, uh, I realized I'd reached, I think 10 years into my meditation journey, I realized I'd reached as far as I felt I could reach just meditating. Um, and then it, then it just became apparent to me from all the books I was reading on yoga, metaphysics, uh, Qigong, Tai Chi, the meditation had a lot more to offer than just feeling peaceful. And I don't want to just feeling peaceful is a great treasure. And I'm not trying to say, you know, there's anything wrong with that. But the, the, it just became apparent that I'd reached um, like um, a barrier or a brick wall in my meditation practice. So at the time, I realized I had to take up Tai Chi, which I did. That started to get me really into the understanding of how energy works with consciousness in the body, what emotion is, what feeling is, that actually thoughts are subtle movements of energy through the mind, but let's not go too deep at the moment. Um, and, and then that, that was the deepening journey. And I think that part of the journey I've been on now for about maybe 15 or 20 years, that journey's taken me to do really in-depth uh, meditation and Tai Chi retreats in uh, Thailand. Uh, take, I took a year off all work uh, and, and kind of lived on a yoga mat in uh, uh, my uh, a close friend's uh, computer room, uh, just meditating pretty much all day, going for short walks to really understand uh, the, the application or how deep meditation and energy work could really take me. And that was a profound year. And I guess to, up to about two years ago, I'd built up quite a, a, a large uh, following in Tai Chi classes, maybe teaching about 100 people a week. Um, and then, of course, what happened two years ago, I ended up on uh, online teaching Tai Chi and energy work and that kind of brings us up to, to modern day or complete day. My meditation journey, on, on, just very briefly in that, has been starting with very simple uh, visualization meditations, then going more into what you could call uh, Taoist or metaphysical yogic meditations where you start to use energy within the body to open up consciousness. And then, I guess, a, a full spiral around through mindfulness, which wasn't I think when I studied it I had to learn it for myself to do with my depression and my anxiety um, 
So, yeah, I guess that's the journey. Maybe dedicating at least an hour a day for 30 years and maybe uh, up to three to four hours a day now of practice uh, outside my teaching of, of meditation. And, and I suppose I, I'm a bit of, I live like a monk, I suppose, is what, what I could say to that. So I hope that's uh, not too long an answer to your question. <laughs> no, Graham, that's fantastic. And, you know, it's a really, it's a potted history and bio because um, you write this plenty, plenty of, deviation and and definition along the way that we could uh, we could bring but just looking at the time spent because what that illustrates to me is that actually you make time you don't just wait for these things to fall in line you actively create time to focus on meditation and some of the deeper concepts could you maybe speak to your definition or indeed your insight and revelation on what meditation means to you yeah, I, that's, that's a, another great question. I remember reading um, maybe 10 years ago when I was like questioning, what, why am I even meditating? What, what's what you meant to get out of meditation? I just knew I was doing it and I wasn't sure what the output was. So I, I went to the great higher self called Google and typed in what am I meant to be getting out of meditation? And it was one of the Buddha's sayings. And it says he said that, you know, your meditation is working if you become happier. And it's like, all right, yeah, that makes sense. And um, so what do I think meditation is? From my, my own perspective, experience, okay. So meditation, it talks about this in the Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu book of mysticism. It really says meditation is just a practice of concentration. That's it, nothing more. You're just learning. And so then the, the next level is, well, why concentrate? What's the point of concentration? So that might be the question. So the answer to that would be, in my experience, because our mind is out of control and our mind is creating uh, hell for a lot of us individually, holding on to negative aspects of the past, coming up with troublesome fantasies about the future. And kind of, uh, you know, I think when the mind is completely out of control, it just runs amok within our own lives and within society as well. So meditation is a way of building a more healthy relationship with your mind initially through learning what the mind is that's usually the first stage uh, which we, you could call a contemplative practice of meditation and that's simply as they say in um, a lot of the Chinese Zen traditions they they don't even call it meditation you know they uh, they just say say all you do is sit down and watch your mind that's it that's a whole practice of Chinese Zen just sit down watch your mind and see what you figure out and so then you, so that's the contemplative side of meditation, which is a more passive yin approach to, to mind control, personal mind control. And then you have the, the more, what they call single pointed mind in some of the Buddhist traditions. So that's the ability to control your mind by bringing it to one thing. One thing could be the breath. One thing could be a mantra. Mantra in Sanskrit, different meanings, but the man is manas, means mind. Tra means either protection or focus. So mantra means that it's a, it's, a, it's a way of focusing the mind on a single repetitive thought. So again, that's a, a, it's, a, it's a way of concentrating. And so uh, a lot of the, actually a lot of the early scientific experiments they did into mindfulness were, were really, they, they, they initially found that both mindfulness, which is the Buddhist practices of observing the mind, and some of the more devotional traditions, uh, I think they, 
they work with a Franciscan monk as well, as, as, sorry, a Franciscan nun who use prayer. And they found that actually either just watching the mind from a passive meditative way, which were more, more Taoist Zen approach, or to use kind of some kind of repetitive breath or symbol or word had the same effect on the central nervous system, just a very relaxing, calming effect. So you have the practice of meditation, which is either single focused mind or watching the mind, or you have the ability to uh, go into the second stage of meditation, which is a, it's a, it's a different experience of self. And in the yoga traditions, they call that samadhis, like a more expansive understanding of who we are. So that's the that's the most succinct, smallest version I can give you. <laughs> and that's great, Graham, because, you know, what I realize is that in people's daily, busy, hectic notification world, actually being still accessing your mind, probably through your breath, just as in just really de-escalating all the noise and watching what appears in your mind and what comes up in your mind and this sense of somatic intelligence, just paying attention to your body, paying attention to any aches and pains in your back or indeed in your legs or anything and, and, and reoccurring thoughts, anxieties, things that marinate is such a powerful tool because what that illustrates, I'm kind of hitting every topic I want to talk about right now, but um, around micro attention and just and just bringing bringing, like you say, focus uh, and 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 knowing how disparate our thought life can be and how it can drag you to 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 these bizarre places. But then we can really start to bring it back. And I think maybe the jumping off point to training the mind, or indeed awareness, is knowing how disparate it is in the first place, no, uh, getting an appreciation of baseline. And if you don't have that appreciation of how disparate and sporadical and anxious your baseline might be. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a beautiful way of putting it. I think the, um, the first thing that meditation, I think once you engage your mind in a mantra or watching the breath or being in the moment or finding your practice, what you start to notice is that when the mind becomes quieter, uh, less uh, problematic, there starts to appear another sense of self that is, you could call it witnessing, observing uh, type of consciousness. And then it's frustrating because you finish meditating and that appears to go because your mind starts up again. But at least you got a glimpse, at least your central nervous system may have reset for a while. Or if you're in a stressful position, you know, just like you would describe, you know, in, in some of your, certainly your previous work uh, as a paramedic, uh, you're, you're, you can create a moment of stillness where we, as I understand it, we connect with the more evolved areas of the brain. We leave the fight or flight mechanism. We calm the limbic system. We, connect with the neocortex through the um through the relaxation response of the body where where our higher out of the box revelation insight they have all these different names for these this type of mind in the ancient traditions but we we get a better type of thinking a less reactive form like more genius level thinking so we can certainly use it in those traditions but then the 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 eastern traditions really see that as a doorway that actually the first thing is to calm your mind 
but um i think it was the ram das famous uh, devotional teacher uh, who worked with timothy leary um and he said the 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 quieter you get the more you can hear and he was you know referring to the inner world really of you know that we have this what einstein called the genius within us um and in fact, interestingly, the genius used to mean of the soul. It was, uh, you know, that's what it meant. It wasn't a chosen few that were geniuses. Like I think it was Einstein that actually said or reputed to have said, you know, if you put a, a fish up a tree, it will watch a monkey and feel like a failure all of its life. And he said in the same way that we all, we all are geniuses, but we just have to find our place in the world and then, you know, to, to live from that greater self uh, from that place. So Graham, just looking at the organismic self and why it's so important, could you maybe just unpack what the organismic self is and yeah, its central importance within our lives? So such a great question. So the organismic self, as far as I'm concerned, you know, and what I'd studied in uh, humanistic psychology is our, in Taoism, they would call it our original nature, the nature that we had perhaps when we came into the world. And then the, to read, I like the word discover, discover, you know, to read, to rediscover that nature is, uh, that's the point of really, any type of healing practice, as far as I can see. It was certainly the idea of um, humanistic psychology, which is the, the model that became the counseling model, you know? So, so the idea is that we have this pure self, you know, they call it the self, they call it the Buddha nature in Buddhism, they call it the Atma in uh, yoga. I think it's probably what they call the inner Christ, possibly in Christian mysticism, mysticism as well. But there's something within us that's, um, we could call it pure in so much as I don't mean that as, as, a, as a whole, like a holy religious statement, but pure means it's untouched necessarily by the traumas um, that we pick as, up as we roll through life. So really all, all healing is, is an attempt, whether we're doing meditation or counseling or whatever we're doing, it's an attempt to get back to that. And so it, it can, that leads us on to the two powerful words. One is awakening, which you've already mentioned, you know, beginning of the conversation, and one is healing. And meditation does both. So the, to get back to the organismic self needs two things. It needs our, our ability to pay attention, to be in the classroom of our own mind and emotions, to see what we're doing unconsciously day in, day out, to witness that. And then we also need the healing, which is, if you like, the, the removal of those virus, that virus software from our central nervous system on our mind, so that this organismic pure self can start to be more of a directing force in our life. And that what that's really what awakening means to whether you call that, you know, Christian mystical tradition. I think that's what they really call bringing heaven to earth. You know, the, the kingdom of heaven within us. They, de they defined it as that. And in a lot of Tibetan Buddhism and certainly in Zen, they call that the the Buddha nature. And so it's all the same thing. And the Taoism they call it the Tao. You know, the, our, our natural connection with all of life. And so it's a stripping away, really. Uh, and are coming back to our ability to 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 meet each moment uh, that the Zen guys are so good at explaining this and and having pointers to it. You know, the the the, the most beautiful 
description I've heard of, of living from that is living in a constant state of not knowing. And so, you know, so what that really means is like Lao Tzu says in the Tao Te Ching, you know, that presuming to know is a disease. And it really he's saying what once we can embrace not knowing, that's where the wisdom comes from. That's where our mind can be relaxed and open and open to intuition and insight. And that's when we can start to live from that organismic self, which is, a, it's, it's a, yeah, it's our place of genius in the world. So I guess that's what I would describe as the organismic self. Uh, yeah. So looking at the Zen, Buddhist and Taoist perspective on meditation, Graham, and sort of maybe your observations of, of all three, could you maybe just speak to the uniting concepts or central patterns that they all kind of fundamentally come back to would it be around the observation of mind and or mind focus like you said either seeing your thought life and then learning to focus would would that be a central concept or or are there there others you could speak to Mm. you see there's there's only really as far as i can see one concept um that's described in different ways and so that the one concept is to ask answer the simple question who are you that's that's the one concept and of course that a Taoist would call that the Tao. and so but then Lao Tzu starts the Tao Te Ching with a, such a great opening question where he says I call it the Tao but that's not what it's called <laughs> So don't don't get addicted to that name. Don't get attached to it because that's going to create more problems. It creates a mind game. And so really, these concepts, if if we looked at, you see that even within these traditions, there's there's what you would call more of a philosophy-based approach. And there's more of the original, which I call mystical-based approach. So one is a more theological approach and one is a, the opposite to that. And I, and I love the word mystery because I think that's where mystic comes from. It's like, it's, it's like either mist, which is the unknown or the mystic, which is someone who can embrace the unknown is really what you would call the, the Zen and the Taoist practitioner. So it's really to understand um, who you are. If you look at the history of, of, of Taoism, Really, the history of Taoism is there's, there's a time where, how unusual, there's a lot of war going on that's unnecessary, because shock, horror, you know, who'd have thought that could uh, happen? <laughs> so there's a lot of war going on in China. And then the, uh, the idea is that they, a group of mystics who live a very simple lives in, in nature are asked if they can come up with a solution to all this war. And so they come up with this idea of Taoism that actually nature that as they perceive it isn't at war with itself it's in harmony with itself is is how they saw it and so their their healing approach or their ability to fall into that mystery comes from the observation of a, a mountain stream or the turning of the seasons and that's their meditation generally to be able to observe life but from a, a state of not knowing, just the complete learning it all the time. And then when Buddhism uh, first arrived in, in China, 
it was uh, it was infused by the religion of the country. So Buddhism was infused with Taoism, became Chan Buddhism for about 700 years. And then it was taken to Japan and Japan, the name for Chan in, in, in Japan is Zen. Um, and, and both those words to mean to simply meditate. So Zen really is, an, is a fusion of Buddhist concepts and Taoist ideas or Taoist ideas. Um, and it's all really, it's really, to, it's the attempt to just, gosh, just to leave the mind behind. And then it's almost like turn the computer on and off again. How can we reboot the mind? But all of those, even this, that strand of Buddhism came from India. So again, <laughs> you keep on looking at its, its flow through all these. And, the, and really the, the Zen tradition, most people would agree that it's the whole Zen approach to, to Buddhism really started with, I think it's called the flower sermon where the Buddha simply picked up a flower and, and held it up. And the, the story goes, everyone's waiting for the teaching. And then one guy sat at the back realizes that that's the whole teaching. <laughs> and he becomes the first, I guess, what you call the Zen the, to, 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 to bring it back to simplicity. It doesn't, need to be complicated it can be as, as simple as looking at a flower or the sky or you don't need the the philosophy of you know that other forms of buddhism adapted beautifully and use it in their separate ways in a more devotional approach to buddhism but really yeah the essence is boil it all down to its simplest component and and, and live from that so Graham, looking at the three treasures that you spoke to before, the I'm going to butcher this now, but it's the Jing, the K, and the Shen. No, I've completely butchered that's pretty that. good. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's Jing Shi Shen. Jing Shi Shen. Although some people say Ying Chi Shen, but I'm from Manchester, you know, <laughs> we, we pronounce things differently there. <laughs> Could you maybe unpack them and what they represent? Yeah, absolutely. Now, what I'm going to describe and explore with you now is not what you would call an absolute book definition of Jing Chi Shen, because I come from a very much a, a know-nothing perspective and finding out what these things mean to me personally within my practices. But in the essence, they call it the three treasures of Taoism, that actually to, to, for your organismic original nature to function in the world effectively without interference patterns we need um we need jing jing is your is your physical it's simply your, you could say your physical vitality so the yogis practice yoga and what they call pranayama which is breathwork techniques to to raise their, their their kundalini their energy their sense of well-being the taoists tend to use predominantly a moving breathwork practice called tai chi or qigong to raise their vitality some are more akin to using uh, what they call the medical qigongs of herbs and various things like this. And some schools are more towards the, the physical movement and breath work, which would be my approach. So the idea is that, I mean, the story really is that the Bodhidharma, the creator of the, what they believe is the creator of Zen, uh, as we know it, who, who came across the Himalayas and to, to China and created Shaolin Kung Fu, 
uh, Zen Buddhism, uh, Qigong, possibly, you know, a very interesting character, you know, best CV in the world. Uh, he, um, he, he discovered the first monastery that from what I've read, the first monastery he discovers the monks are just meditating all day, but they're in, they're not really getting anywhere with their meditations. Their, their health is not great because they're just sat meditating every day. And so then the story is that Bodhidharma was probably a master of one of the Indian martial arts. I can't remember the name of it right off the top of my head now. So then the story goes, he started to teach them these uh, exercises, breath work and movement exercises based on the martial arts background he had. And that became the first Shaolin temple. So that, that so the idea of that is that at the foundation of being, if we're just meditating all day, then the, the body can get quite sick and, and quite run down unless you're some advanced yogi up in the mountains doing all kinds of way out practices. But generally on a, on a physical everyday le level, we need to have a physical level of health and radiance. Uh, I, I, that's certainly what they found with um, mindfulness as, as mindfulness took over in the over probably about 10 years ago, they soon discovered that mindfulness without exercise was quite limited in its application for feeling good. So Jing simply means physical health. Do you have a good physical health system? So then yoga, Tai Chi, Qigong, they celebrate that. They get into the body. The next level is called the heart energy or Qi. This links in with your emotions again. If you're a meditator, but you're not maybe doing what's called breath work now or working with what they call Kundalini energy, again, your emotional resilience may not be great. So you may find what I see living in Glastonbury, you know, or living anywhere where there can be um, a lot of meditations and spiritual practices is that it's, it's sometimes people who are really good at meditation and maybe have um, kind of subtle gifts within that meditation, you know, of healing or, you know, card reading, whatever. They quite often have troublesome lives because it's almost they're good at being outside of the world within their own mind, but they're not so good about being in, in their body just in daily life. So the, the Taoists realized that there was this chi, this energy field of well-being. So within their system that you were in, invited to, learn how to raise the vibration of your body you know your 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 heart energy your feeling level if you like depression anxiety has a has a, a physical feeling or vibration to it like emotion is you know two words for me emotion uh, within the body energy emotion and then so you train your body to be healthy you train your heart to be more compassionate uh, more creative, more open. You know, Steve Jobs would speak about the, the wisdom of the heart and how that led him to, to create the company that he created. He said, your heart already knows what it wants to become. So he recognized there's a wisdom in the heart. And then the Shen is the mind. So you train the mind through meditation, simply. So the, the Taoist practices of Jing Qi Shen, the three treasures, have a, a focused and strong mind through meditation generate a good feeling that like you could just call call that being more positive being happier and then within the physical body a body that is able to function in the world that is healthy and strong and flexible and so really that is the the idea of having the three tre treasures of jing 
chi shen mind heart and body is the ability to if you like um inhabit the soul you know so that the soul can rest in the body without too many distortions and you you can really live your maximum capacity in your daily life creatively in your relationship and your work so yeah that's the idea of, of their system mm. that's powerful actually that's really powerful graham could you speak to the the concept of transcendence for a while and just really pass that part so what it means from your perspective and what does sort of transcendent living look like to to you so it's a so yeah what a so there's so many ideas i can come back with around this so let, let let's start with the word transcendent living so i don't think that's possible and so let me tell you like because we we have transcendent and we have imminent and so tr transcendent living is what i think so many people within the spiritual arena attempt to do and so what that means is that their meditation becomes an escape from life it's like i i i get blissed out my one of my great tai chi masters uh he said don't become a bliss junkie <laughs> as your as your energy levels start to increase you know don't in other words you create a detachment from life so i meditate and oh you know i love everything but then as soon as I come back and my partner looks at me that way or you know, someone's reads to me at work, that's all out the window now. So, so transcendence is, um, let's look at someone who would be more grounded with the word transcendence. So I'm sure I heard an interview with Richard Dawkins, I think. Oh, Dawkins? Is it Dawkins? Or Daw anyway, so... And he, he spoke about, for, for maybe someone who's more atheistic or agnostic, uh, transcendence would be the feeling that you get when you are in awe of nature or you listen to an incredible piece of classical music. So we could say that is one aspect of transcendence. It's, in other words, an experience which leads us to break the boundaries of self. You know, the, 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 that very subtle limitation in what I would call the energy field. That, so there's a sense of expansion and a loss of individ, individuality. And then I suppose a, 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 what we could call a mystic or a yogi, something like that, for them, transcendence is, I, what was it? I think Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, the Zen master, I think that's how you pronounce his name. He, he said, I think, I think he said enlightenment or transcendence is when the, the wave realizes it's the ocean. And so that's a, a beautiful way of putting it. So that's when the divide happens, unfortunately. A lot of people think, oh, I'm not an individual self anymore. I am all that is. And then it's like, well, try saying that to the passport office and <laughs> when you're trying to get your passport, you know, it's not going to work. Or try, you know, when you get pulled over, you know, well, could I just have your name, sir? You know, I'm all that is and ever was, but, you know, it's not really that practical to have that in life. So we still have our name. And so that when we, when we harmonize transcendence, which is the experience of being beyond any description <laughs> that we can give to ourselves a real like we could call it an expansion of consciousness then it's like well that's really nice what a great 
story to tell at dinner parties <laughs> but how does that help me be imminent in my life so transcendence has to have the balance of uh, imminence in other words we're having this conversation and if I can be one foot in and one foot out of this conversation in other words if I can be present to you and the, the questions, and to use the language in response to your questions, that's having, you know, one foot in the world. But how do we be out of the world, you know, as Christ says, be in the world, but are not of it. And, you know, most of the Hindu deities like Ganesh have one foot on the floor and then one leg is crossed in lotus, again, recognizing transcendence and imminence. So how do I find that balance? And so that's the, that's the meeting place they were calling Taoism of heaven and earth, transcendence which is connecting to a part of us, which is beyond all limitation, but also being able to have this conversation with you at exactly the same time. And, and that's the balance in these ancient traditions we're looking for of um, how to be completely divine and completely human all at the same time. You could word it that way. Um, yeah, I guess that, that's the closest I could say. The, the transcendent states, really, they're called samadhi states in yoga. And the, the more intense that they become, the less language we really have to explain that. But really, there's, there's, there's just no sense of an individual self anymore. You know, as Buddha described it, I'm one with everything, you know. And then the joke goes, you know, Buddha goes to the pizza salesman and says, you know, can I have one with everything? And the book gets confused. So is he talking about transcendence or pizza? You know? <laughs> so, yeah, I hope that is as clear as I can give you an answer on transcendence. No, absolutely. And just, you know, bringing it back to my life, you know, to try and transcend the waves of emotion and tiredness as a paramedic through the elongation of long shifts and, you know, difficult patients or difficult situations and trying to transcend that with, with some level of sanity and uh, aptitude and calmness and de-escalation. Um, one of the things I realize is you can't project stuff out in the world unless you're embodying it in inside yourself so or you can for a short amount of time but unless it's real and organic it, it won't last and you will return to baseline whether you like it or not um and another thing i really realized as well graham is that actually what you what you do in the dark will be revealed in the light and that's a really metaphorical way of saying how you treat yourself and how much you self-care and look after yourself and look after your mind and come to rest in when you're not seen will really play out when you're seen beyond beyond that when you know when you're at work or when you're amongst others or when you're teaching and what i've learned in that and it's a discipline in itself is is being is being disciplined with yourself when no one's watching and that's discipline equals freedom but and that's not to say you can't access rest in that discipline but it's 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 practicing things when no one's watching things around um yeah meditation around rest around knowing when to 
do things that bring you life, like play, enter into play, go out for a mountain bike ride or for a walk or things that actually we lose the sense of play as adults. And I think it's really powerful. But doing things in the dark, which will be revealed in the light, because, because actually you, after a process of time, through fatigue or otherwise, trying to transcend your baseline self will come awry. And actually, you need to steward yourself wisely in the times of rest and the times of being unseen. And I mean, that's and that sounds really like a really fancy way. And I wish I completely adhered to it. But I even if I get there 80 percent of the time and because I was coming up to work and just had no energy, I sometimes no time for people had no capacity and I just had to examine what I was doing on my days off and I was consistently working getting up too early not really looking after my body and then realizing if you don't give yourself this capacity there's no ability to transcend when the heat is really on when the stress is on when you're teaching when you're training when you're being a paramedic when you're doing x y and z so yeah it's this reciprocity and it's and it comes back to the kind of the yin and the yang kind of stewarding yourself in the dark so that when you're in the in the light it's 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 a fair and consistent representation of your your best self um so to that point Graham and quite nicely segues into what you were talking about earlier with the Zen master just looking at a flower um one of my revelations is around micro attention and um when I've been away abroad but not even just when I'm walking in this country um just paying attention to myself but just to little things in nature there's a massive there's a there's a large ecosystem playing out in front of everybody's face you know in, in, in within the birds within the within the plant life within the uh, the bees and the flies and the and actually just paying attention to that and paying attention to what's around you rather than what's maybe not around you could you maybe speak to microattention graham and how you've honed and developed microattention yeah, I, I would love to. I just want to reflect as well, something you just eloquently said, just to finish on the transcendent thing, if that's okay. And it was that we we don't tend to grow, I feel, until we see possibility uh, or until or we're pushed by pain You quite a lot of the time also. But one of the, the useful things about transcendence is you start to see the possibility of happiness and peace. And it's like, wow, I want more of that. And then the, the brain, the, the problem solving computer, the brain, every time we dip into transcendence, there's like, I can't hold on to that. And so the question is, how can I have more of that? And then as you're saying, I guess that segues onto what you're saying. Okay. Um, when I'm in a stressful situation or at work, how can I just have a sip of transcendence? And that might be, I remember I was going into, I was going to give this uh, uh, training um, around meditation uh, for a large uh, organization. And I just, I'd had a month to get it together. And I've been working on it every night and it just, I couldn't get it together. And I was going into this meeting, present it in 10 minutes time. And I'm staring at my laptop going, I don't even understand what I'm going to be saying here. And so it's like, well, what do I know to be true for me? How do I connect and understand this? And I thought, right, I've got 10 minutes. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take my laptop down into the car park and I'm going to sit under a tree and be quiet. 
And so I, I sat and I looked at the trees you're describing, found how to downregulate, you could call it my central nervous system, my mind out of its stress response of I need to do this. And within something I've been trying to work out for at least a month, how to structure this presentation. It, it was like it downloaded in, in about 10 seconds. I like saw the whole thing, rattled it out. I've changed all my uh, PowerPoint presentation, you know, two, two minutes. It's like, oh, I get it now. Went up and gave this great presentation and went on to, you know, be able to do that uh, in quite a lot of uh, venues in the UK. So these, do you, so microtension, do you say microtension? So, yeah. So the way I describe it is that we, ha we have this uh, unconscious, subconscious and conscious being. And really what we could call in Chinese medicine is that the idea is whenever there's a stagnant stagnation of qi, which is called what we call jing qi shen, we spoke about before. So if we have a lack of ease and let what is lack of ease, uh, dis-ease or disease, you know, lack of ease in the mind or lack of ease in the emotions, lack of ease in the body, then we, at a very unconscious level, we could be grinding our jaw, carrying the weight of the world on our shoulders, have a nervous stomach, you know, have a backache, have a raging headache because we've got so much chi that's built up in the head from overthinking and worrying. So, these micro tensions really, what we learn is as we really dis discover how to get quite deeply quiet, we start to become very, very tuned to our body. You know, we, we start to notice, oh, I'm, I just don't feel out, I feel out sorts. And so we might notice, so for example, anxiety is, is a label that we give to a sensation in the body. So we, we might breathe into that and realize that that's there. And we start to discover that, the quality of the awareness that we bring to any kind of tension within the being or in the body has the capacity to literally, it's like an unblocking mechanism. It sets the energy free quite a lot of the time or allows us to explore it deeper in a, in a therapy session. So I, I guess if I, if I've understand the wording correctly and please, uh, you know, let me, let me know if I haven't, but, to me, the a micro tension is just that the ability to notice if something is out of balance, causing a, a, a lack of ease in the emotions or in the the psychological aspects of our being or in the physical aspects of the of the being, which are all interlinked anyway, and just be, being able to, to to bring the awareness to a very subtle uh, level is a way of releasing that tension but I also hear the reflection you were giving about maybe stopping in a park and looking at a leaf on the floor or you know the the, the uh, you know the the movement of the grass in the wind so uh, maybe that that for a micro tension is what you were referring to so sorry if I misunderstood that in, a, in any way no I think it's it speaks to the same principle which is um understanding internal or external drivers how have you really zoned into noticing what your body's telling you either from a physiological perspective or from an emotional and or spiritual perspective graham what a great question so um i think we have unconscious and conscious drives and so 
my my belief and experience is that within the body we have two types of drives we have a one we could call a pre-installed software which we got from you know our parents or society and my my feeling is examining my somatic experiences that some of those can be disruptive uh when we start the healing journey. So we might actually long for or be drawn towards or have pleasant responses towards things that that don't really serve my highest, you know, good, you know, so to speak. I think what I've learned in my body is that the more it's a, I, I want to say these words, but they're so banded around. But anyway, the more conscious I've become, you know, I just suddenly want to put on da- tie-dye now. Not that that's a problem. <laughs> but, the, you know, the more conscious I've become, um, the more I become, the more over time I've been able to identify and release the somatic experiences that were pre-installed that didn't serve me. And then over time, the more that I see my organismic self has a, has a somatic experience in the body, um, the more I get rid of these faulty pieces of software that were passed on to me within my central nervous system, which I call feelings and desires and, and compulsions, the, the calmer and clearer I get in my somatic experience, the more, uh, not just for myself, but when I work with a client, you know, I can, I can literally say as they're talking to me, I am feeling a pain in my chest as you're saying that. And they look and go, oh, my God, so am I. So it's a very, which is called the empathy circuit, you know, who knows how that works, if it's a mystical thing or a, just a very subtle body language cue that we pick on that, that, that's beyond ours. But with the somatic experience, my, my personal experiences, the clearer we get in our own body about what is a genuine somatic experience, the more that we can be present to other people in conversation and awareness that somehow heals or starts to free them from theirs. It's a really weird and spooky thing, but spooky in a good way. So yeah, I think unconscious somatic programming, conscious somatic is when the, the soul self, the organismic self is, is more comfortable in the body. Graham, just coming into land on a couple of things, really. I wanted just to get your perspectives on a toolbox, um, for mental, emotional, and physical health, just um, something in which that you could, um, that listeners could maybe take away from realignment or bringing back down to baseline where they can, or even just positive affirmation as to where they want to be physically, mentally, and spiritually. Could you maybe just speak to a few toolbox methods that you that you advocate for Mm, beautiful question so start with a fundamental understanding that um that you're already a beautiful lovable acceptable being so it's interesting when you bring self-actualization has two components one is the realization that I, the way I describe it simply is that the, the acorn is, is, is as complete as the oak tree. 
So like it's to see the, the potential. So, so the first is to really learn to fall in love with yourself and not in a, in a kind of a way that creates stress or trying or pushing or anything artificial, but the ability to be compassionate towards the experience of self you're having in this moment, which is a level of self-acceptance and self-love, but also uh, to, to realize that from completeness, completeness comes. From brokenness, brokenness comes. From sadness, more sadness comes. From joy, more joy comes. So, so in this moment, to know uh, of your beauty, you know, as a unique expression of life, never been done before, never be done again, to, and to embody and to, to, to make your peace and relax into that. But then also notice that there's a, there's a heart longing within that to actualize something. So also there's, a, there's an opportunity to, to really find your purpose, what you're here to do in the world. So that's the first thing. What I would also say, just very briefly touching on the Jing Chi Shen philosophy, as I call it, the three pillars of well-being. It's, it's, it's very troublesome, if not impossible, to live a life in a, in a body that it isn't experiencing a level of health and well-being. So, you know, first is very simple, you know, make sure you're getting exercise and taking in reasonably good food and, and drink, you know, a liquid for the heart you know learn the the more beautiful to, to start to learn to dwell in more beautiful emotional states i also said the baseline of an, a beautiful emotional state is peace so if you're depressed can you make your peace as being someone with depression if you're anxious can you make your peace that you have an anxious experience you know, so that piece is always available to whatever emotional state is there. So for the heart, learn to live in just slightly better emotional states for your well-being. For the mind, uh, learn uh, just initially just to focus on one thing at a time, even if that's having a shower, enjoying your morning tea, going for a walk and admiring the clouds. Find moments in your day to train your mind to be available. And I would say they're the, the three pillars, you know, physical health, emotional health, mental health. And that's powerful and beautiful, mate, because I think that that, that, that self-care and almost self, well, self-acceptance is, is the jumping off place for that. And um, yeah, that self-narrative as well, that it's a loving one and an accepting one rather than a debasing uh, one is 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 absolutely key but those three pillars are absolutely fundamental graham so just um so just as we come into land on the conversation graham could you maybe just uh speak to any take-homes um around indeed self-care or, or otherwise that you'd like to confer to listeners um just and and leave them with as they um as we, as we come into land uh, a beautiful way of self-care and of course there's many many ways but um it's such a in india they say it's like a potter's wheel you know on the potter's wheel you need for self-care they call it the outer hand of discipline on the potter's wheel and the inner hand of love and so then you need the inner hand which expands the pot 
But then without the outer hand to shape that, it just goes all over the place. <laughs> so much love on its own is uh, it can be a bit sentimental, you know. It's it, and then the outer hand of the potter's wheel is the self-discipline. If you just have self-discipline without love, you make a hard little ball, you know, on the potter's wheel. So the the perfect balance yin and yang is in everything you know so it's that that perfect harmony of self-discipline and self-compassion and if if you can find what the buddha referred to and Lao Tzu referred to as your own unique middle way not too much not too little you you've cracked your life you know you've cracked it <laughs> listen that's powerful that's absolutely powerful and um and i love that um and i think it's it's definitely a life lived in equilibrium. Um, one of the things I'm realizing more and more is about how to achieve balance, but that's that's a fundamental sort of meta theme of of life because we our bodies live in homeostasis, our lives are, you know are 37 degrees, and you know your hydration, your chemical processes, and it's the way that that we should live our lives in 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 our spiritual physical and mental uh lives as well and and in equilibrium um but but those fundamentals of self-care uh is a powerful because i um i i choose to be around people i want to be around people that are, are practicing self-care because i want is 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 a constant reminder around me is that that the that i'm spending time with people that are at equilibrium and uh can work from a place of self-acceptance and and love and um because that's what very much what i want to embody uh even in this last hour graham i have got so much from you and it's almost not even the spoken word it's just the position that you talk speak from your the tonality the intonation the the learned and lived experience uh, that all is called forth before you even open your mouth and and that's powerful and um and so i would love to have another conversation with you on the podcast because there's so much more to go at graham and so much more to unpack and so much more anecdotal experience from your perspective just to 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 uncover so i would i would love to have another conversation with you and we will put in the show notes um, signposting to your website and indeed to contact you further. Um, but I will definitely um, want to have you on as, as a part two for the conversation. It's been such a joy. Thank you so much for having me along today. And um, it's beautiful to see we're on cameras. And as, you, as we've entered the conversation about lighting up, the sun has risen behind you and the light is pouring into your room. So it, it looks quite transcendental from my end. So I, I, I'm uh, in so much gratitude for giving me this opportunity to, to speak to you. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.